Welcome to the STSA Church Podcast. Each week, we discuss relevant, thought-provoking topics that challenge us to understand our faith more personally and engage in it more practically. We aim to communicate the depth and riches of our ancient faith in simple and understandable ways that are relatable to the modern world. All right. Good morning, and welcome to the well here at STSA. It's great to see a packed house here in Leesburg. Great to see those who are on the other side of the camera in Arlington. We are in part three of a series called The Tabernacle, which as you see up there on the screen is the divine blueprint. And what what we're talking about here is this big tent that God commanded in the Old Testament his people to build as a place where he would dwell among people. And it is the blueprint for what intimacy between man and God looks like. And if you've ever read any of the chapters or passages on the tabernacle, and if you read the Bible, you probably have, because there's 50 chapters in the Bible dedicated to this big tent tabernacle in the wilderness. You know that the tabernacle is very glorious, it is very majestic, and it is very boring. It's probably the most boring part. If you take aside the so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so This is probably the most boring part of the Bible because this is where, as I shared in the first week, this is where when you decided, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover, okay, you got inspired, you're going to read the whole thing, and you started in Genesis, and it's exciting in Genesis, and there's all kinds of characters, and there's action, and there's drama, and there's suspense, and there's Exodus, and that's like a movie scene is what Exodus is. That's like a superhero story with the ten plagues and the Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea and then the killing of the bad guy's firstborn. You're like, the Bible is the coolest thing ever. Then you get to the tabernacle. And this is usually where you say, what's next on the agenda for my spiritual goals? Because the tabernacle, as I said, all the action and drama of the Bible comes to a grinding halt when we start to hear about curtains, and types of materials for the wood, and the size of the sockets, and the numbers of the sockets, and where to put the sockets, and how to offer the sacrifices, and where his right toe should go, and where his left foot should be, and this on the air, and you just say to yourself, enough, too much detail, too much detail. Let me ask you a question. Why does God give so much detail about the tabernacle? When you pay a lot of attention to detail, that's a sign Help me out. Tell me if you agree or disagree. Attention to detail is a sign of something's importance. Would you agree with that? That's why, think of like your wedding day and the attention to detail you give that versus a random Tuesday in October. On your wedding day, you know exactly what time you're going to wake up, exactly what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, and write brides. Tell me if this is true or not true. You know exactly when and where you're going to go to the bathroom that day. You schedule in advance. And you don't just schedule for yourself. You tell everyone else when they can eat, when they can go to the bathroom too. And you make sure your husband knows, or your soon-to-be husband, you go before you come. Okay, because there's no bathroom. So you have very, very attention to detail. Why? Because you found the love of your life. And this is a special day where you're going to spend the rest of your life with them. Exodus 25. Listen to what God says. He says, then I have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. And this begins the the, the 50 chapters of dedication to every single little detail about the tabernacle. That shows the importance of what God is describing. Because the tabernacle, talked about in the first week, is all about communion. 
between man and God. The tabernacle is a foreshadowing of our heavenly wedding to come. So because of that, God says, bear with me. I'm going to give you a few details right here, but it's only because of the importance of this sacred event that's taking place. So last week we started, okay, here's a picture of the tabernacle. And we talked about how the tabernacle kind of has two meanings. The tabernacle can mean this whole compound, this whole area that's fenced in. But the tabernacle proper is actually the tent thing that's at the, at the right side of the screen right there. So last week we started with the first section, the outer courtyard. And the outer courtyard, we looked at three items in the outer courtyard. First was the gate. Second was the bronze altar. Third was the bronze laver, okay? First was the gate. We said that this whole perimeter, 150 feet by 75 feet, this whole perimeter has only one gate in. It goes against every fire code, violates all the rules. There's only one gate in. And the lesson there was very, very simple, that there's only one way to God, and God sets the way, not me. We are not rule makers. We are rule obeyers. We talked about that last week. Second, we looked at the altar Right there, as soon as you walk in, the altar of sacrifice. And when the rule is that if you want intimacy with me, again, God sets the rules. The first thing is it begins with sacrifice. Okay, we want to come in and just start taking, no, 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 no. The first step towards God is a step of offering and sacrifice. And sometimes that gets messy, and sometimes that gets bloody, and that gets gory, and that gets not very, very nice. But then the third piece of furniture was right behind the altar, which was the laver, which was a big basin of water, where after you made that sacrifice, and the blood and the guts and the pancreas and all the different organs was flying all around, then all of a sudden you go and you wash up, and now you're ready to have intimacy with God. And that reminded us that when we make the sacrifice, it's painful and it's hard, but it's always refreshing and reviving in the end. That was last week. Today, we're going to go inside the tent. We're going to go to the second section. And the second and third section are inside that tent. That tent is called the tabernacle, but it's divided into two sections. The first is called the holy place. And then the second, right after that, is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. They're very creative with their naming back in the, in the Old Testament. So first, we're going to start in that holy place. And inside there, you're going to walk in and there's three items. Again, just like last week, this time you're going to find three items inside that holy place. And they are this. You will find on your left a golden candle stand, or a golden lamp stand also called. On your right, you will find a table, the table of showbread, also called the table of the presence. And then directly in front of you, you'll find another altar, but very different than the altar outside. This is the altar of incense. These three items are what prepare you to enter into the Holy of Holies, which we'll see next week. Last week was outer courtyard. Who could enter the outer courtyard amongst the people of Israel? Who was eligible to enter the outer courtyard? Everybody. All the people. All sons and daughters. Everyone is welcome to offer and to be washed. Everyone is welcome. The second step, the holy place, only a certain type of people were allowed inside. You want to know who? And guess who? Priests were the only people allowed to enter into the holy place. We're going to use priest today. Obviously, Old Testament priesthood has a meaning. But the word priest at its, at its root simply means a servant. Okay? So like the temple of Zeus had priests. The, the, the goddess Diana had priests. So it just means the people who serve at the house or the temple or the sacred place. We're going to see today 
is that to enter deeper into God's presence is not necessarily for everyone. Everyone is invited, but the step to get there is a step of priesthood, a step of consecration, a step we're not necessarily saying that, you know, again, not this kind of priesthood. We'll talk about the difference in, in, in a minute. But it's the person who says, God, I don't want to be just anybody. I want to be your servant. And I'm willing to consecrate my life to serve you. Now, right there, it just sounded like I contradicted myself. Because didn't I make a big fuss the last two weeks about how we are sons, not servants? Remember that? Last two weeks, I talked about how we're sons, not servants. God called sons, not servants. Are we sons? Or are we servants of God? Which one? Are we sons of God? Or are we servants of God? Like, think about it. As a family, if you're a parent, you don't have sons and, like, you have sons or servants. Like, you clear who's your children, and it's clear who are the workers. Which one are we in the kingdom of God? Sons or servants? I mean, they both begin with S. Okay, so all the S-ing, okay, doesn't do much of it, does it good. We're sons of God. Make no mistake about it. Like we showed you the verse. Jesus said, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. We're sons. We're daughters of the king. But follow me here. There's a type of service which is the natural result of sonship. Again, we are sons, not servants. But there's a type of service that is the natural result of sonship. And that's the kind of service that I'm going to call today Loving service, or the word that I really want to hit on, is free will service. There's a difference between voluntary and involuntary service. Free will versus forced service. And I'll give you an example. Imagine you own a store, okay? Uh, uh, a fast food place or a, whatever kind of business you own. And in that store, you hire people. You're hired, you're hired, you're hired, and you're working in the store. And then my son sees that we're struggling, we need help. My son comes in the store, and he starts working. And if you didn't know any different, you'd walk in and you'd see my son and the workers, they're all the same. They're all serving. But what's the difference? Is there a difference? Are they the same between my son working in the store and the employees working in the store? What's the difference? The difference is motivation. The difference is what's causing them to serve. And I'll say it this way. A servant works out of fear of punishment or desire for reward. A son works out of love. Would you agree with that? A servant. The servant and the son both work in the store. Both of them are unloading the delivery truck. Both of them are cutting open the boxes. Both of them are washing the dishes. But there's a big difference. And what caused them to be here? A servant, fear. I'm going to get fired. Or desire for reward. I want to make more money. But a son, just out of love. When our kids were young, when your kids were young, they serve out of fear. You do this, or you're grounded, or you take away your Nintendo, or I don't know what, probably Nintendo's probably a little outdated, but that's when I grew up, okay? Take away your toys. Take, you can't do that. Or if you do this, I'll give you money. When they're kids, okay, you bribe them. But I hope that my children, okay, who were forced to, to do stuff when they were kids, I hope that as they mature and grow, and underline the word hope, okay, hope, okay, hopefully, that as they mature and grow, do the same thing out of love. I hope it's not clean your room or else. I hope I'm not going to my 25-year-old kid and say, clean your room or else. I hope I'm not saying, put away your dishes or else. I hope I'm not saying, mow the lawn. I hope they're coming to me and saying, dad, 
I'm gonna mow the lawn for you because you're an old man. I'm gonna do the dishes because mom's tired. I'm gonna clean my room because I'm a decent human being. I hope that. That's a sign of depth in the relationship. Same tasks, different motivation. First John chapter 4, verse 18 says it this way. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The beginning we serve out of fear, but perfect love casts out fear. It's a development. It's a greater depth. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Very simple. We don't serve out of fear. We don't serve out of torment. We don't serve out of uh, uh, obligation. We love him because he loved us. I'm giving you another verse right now. One of my favorite verses that I discovered recently. It's Psalm 110, verse 3. Listen carefully what this says. It says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Your people shall be volunteers. Did you know that the Bible says that we are called to be volunteers of God? Now you look at this and say, okay, some people ask here at STSA. You may notice if you come from other churches, we use the word volunteer more than we use the word servant. I like the word volunteer. Servant is not bad, but volunteer is better. Why? Two reasons. The first reason I like it is because volunteer, I believe, is clearer. And I believe that anyone walking in off the street who's never attended church a day in their life, if I tell them, can you volunteer? They understand that. They know what that means. If I tell them, can you be a servant? Be like, I like, it's a weird word. It's a very churchy word, which if you're not used to it, has a weird meaning to it, okay? Especially depending on where you're coming from in your background. But more importantly, that's like the little reason. The more important reason, because I think the meaning behind volunteer is better. Because servant means by force. Servant means I'm a slave. Servant means I'm required to do it. But volunteer means free will, means love. And actually, when it comes to the tabernacle, when God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle, one of the things he said, he said, go to the people and tell them, we're going to build this thing, and whoever wants to offer can offer. Don't compel anyone. Don't force anyone. And the word, free will offering, is actually the same word as volunteers. It's the same Hebrew word. When he said, go to the, ta- go for, to the people, tell them, I'm going to do this, who wants to offer? And the people kept offering and offering. That's volunteer. That's what it means to be a child of God. Not I'm forced. Not I have no choice. But we love him because he first loved us. And there's a huge difference between the two. And that gets us to our key thought for today. To take the next step in our intimacy with God. To go from the outer courtyard to the inner place. Again, we're not in the Holy of Holies. That's next week. But to go from A to B, which will eventually lead me to C... This is what's required. Oneness of heart requires oneness of mission. That's our key thought for today. Oneness of heart requires oneness of mission. Take a step back. Outer courtyard, all people, all sons and daughters, no problem. But to get from level one to level two, it's only the people who are the priests who are consecrated to the service. Now, in the Old Testament, you had to be chosen to be a priest. You couldn't volunteer for it. It was only a specific set of people who were chosen by God for a specific purpose. But now, New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. St. Peter says, You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. 
Give yourself a big hand. You're now priest. Congratulations. Welcome to the priesthood. Congratulations. It's nice having you on board. Priesthood. This priesthood that Father Abraham and I and Father Timothy have, this priesthood is not what I'm talking about right now. This is a sacramental priesthood. It's really dedicated to the the, the sacraments of the church. That's not what I'm talking about. In a general sense, we've all been given the opportunity to be priests, servants of the house of God in a different way. Doesn't mean that you're dressed in a black robe, monk, nun, priest, anything like that. What it means is, is that you say, God, I belong to you. My time belongs to you. My energy, my finances, my, everything that I have is consecrated to you. Use me, Lord, as an instrument, as a tool in your hands to do whatever it is that you want. That's a necessary step to greater depth in your relationship with God. You know why? Because the principle is this. There's a connection between my intimacy with God and my consecration to his mission. You may try to resist it. You may seek intimacy with God without consecration to his mission. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live for, I want to do my own thing, but I want to be really close to God. Doesn't work that way. Intimacy with is connected to consecration to. You know where I see this very clear? In marriages. You know the best marriages, the happiest marriages, the ones that not just survive but thrive are not the ones where people have the most common interests. That's a big misconception. It's as if, if only we shared common interests, if only we uh, enjoyed the same activities, if only, that's not. It's not about similarity between each other. It's about people who have a common mission and a common goal. Those are the marriages that thrive. Bottom line, sorry to burst your bubble right here if you're a newlywed and you're in love, whatever it may be, the I love yous, and you make me so happy, and you look so nice, and you smell so nice, and I just love the way you run the car into the garage. Like, all that stuff wears thin after some time. Like, it gets a little bit old after a while. That can't make you last. What lasts is mission. And when there's a common goal and a common mission, and we are on the same page, and we exist to do this, then you know what? You overlook a little bit of the, 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 the cooking wasn't what I expected. You overlook a little bit of the socks, made it next to the hamper, but never got inside the hamper. You overlook how many times you fixed that garage. Like, it's okay, okay? Because you have a commonness of goal, a oneness of heart, and a oneness of mission. I believe the same is true with God. I believe the same is true with God. It's hard, and I'm going to show you right now as we go in the tabernacle, it's hard to have depth and intimacy with God when the things that he cares about are very different than the things that you care about. When the things that he's consecrated himself to is very different than things that I've consecrated myself to. And we're going to see that by going inside the tabernacle. We're going to look at those three pieces of furniture that I said. The table, sorry, we'll go in the order. The lampstand, the table, and the altar of incense. We're going to read a lot of verses about them. Okay, because instead of just me talking about it, we're going to read what, what, what God commanded Moses about them. And then we'll break it down and we'll see. The, the message, okay, as we're reading all this, is that oneness of heart, tabernacle is all about intimacy. Oneness of heart requires oneness of mission. Intimacy with requires consecration too. Let's start with the lampstand. And we're going to pick it up from Exodus 25, 31 to 40. It says, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. 
and six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches on the lampstand on the one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. Attention to detail, because it's important. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and you guessed it, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange it seven lamps so that they give light in front of it. See to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Riveting stuff. We're not going to go through every detail. They're just high level. What did we learn from that? We learned, first of all, the first piece of furniture, like I said, the golden uh, lampstand, is going to on your left as soon as you walk in. It is made of gold, not of bronze. Outside, everything was made of bronze. Inside, everything is made of gold because we're getting higher. We're getting closer to the pure the presence of God. It's one piece, not many pieces, hammered together. It's a central shaft, six branches, fancy design. The estimated weight of this lampstand was 90 pounds of pure, solid gold. Anyone want to guess how much 90 pounds of pure gold would be worth today? $2.7 million. That's the weight of this thing and the magnitude of it, 90 pounds. Twice a day, the priest would go in and he would make sure that this lampstand was burning continuously at all times. Symbolism of this, very easy. Jesus as the light of the world. This was the only source of light inside. There was no windows. So if there's no light, there's darkness, and in darkness, everything goes bad. Also, we can see with everything here in the tabernacle, as I told you all, the tabernacle is a symbol. It's a foreshadowing or a type of Christ. It's also a type of the church, also a type of St. Mary as well. But Christ, light of the world. Church, okay, in, if you know the, the midnight praises that we sing every Saturday night, we talk about the golden stand, the candle stand. And it says, they liken the golden candle stand to the church and its seven lamps to its seven orders. Don't all say it at once, okay? They liken the golden candle stand to the church and its seven lamps to its seven orders because it was seen as a type of the church, which is, again, light to the world. And this is why in church today, Every church service always has candles burning. You see the parallel. Now we'll get to the second piece of furniture, the table. You shall, make also, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings at the four corners that are on its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Again, these are not usually the verses we choose to memorize. Nobody, I never visited anybody in their home. They have the rings and the tables, okay, on their mirror or anything like that. But God gives it a great detail, so it means there's some importance there. On this table, you would find, this would be on this side now, on your right-hand side, this table is called the table of showbread. And on there would be 12 loaves of bread, circular loaves. 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, all the same. 
Big and small, didn't matter. All had their own loaf of bread represented there. The priests would bake the bread weekly. And every week they would bring in the new fresh bread and they would get rid of the old bread. They would actually eat the old bread. Now, what do you think would happen to 12 pieces of bread that sat in the middle of the desert with no AC and no uh, uh, any kind of control and you just left them there for a week? What would you discover when you, found, when you came next Sunday or whatever day they came? They were hot and they were fresh because they were preserved by God. They were in the presence of God and every time the priest would bring the new, the old would taste just like the new and would be hot and fresh. They would never be spoiled. Symbolism here, Jesus as the bread of life. Okay, and obviously there's parallels here to, uh, in the church with communion that Jesus is not just our teacher. He doesn't just tell us what to do, but he fills us and provides for us. Last piece of furniture. You remember what the last piece of furniture is? The altar of incense. Very good. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its width. It shall be a square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay its top, its sides all around, its horns with pure gold. You shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding of both sides on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they will be it holders for the poles with which to bear it. Everything was portable. Everything had sticks to carry because like us here at SCSA, they were temporary. They were in, in the middle of, there wasn't a permanent location. So everything had to be portable. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on him. So every time he comes in the morning to fix the lamps, offer incense. Also, when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight or in the evening, he shall again burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Outside, there was an altar. It was the bronze altar. It was big and it was huge. Inside is this golden altar, and it's much smaller. Why? Because that had what on top of it? What was on top of the bronze altar? What did they do on the bronze altar? Animals. Okay, so that had to be big and huge. No animals offered on this. The sacrifice here is incense. And the incense was offered every morning and every evening. What in the church reminds you of that? Is that what does that remind you of in the church today? Because we do the same thing in the church. Every morning and every evening, we have a raising of incense. Not just, we usually, like now we do it only when we have a liturgy. So we have a liturgy on Sunday morning. So on Saturday night, we have raising of incense on Saturday night, Vespers. And we come early on Sunday morning, matins, raising of incense. It's probably before most people get here, so you may not know what I'm talking about, but trust me, it's there. But that actually doesn't need to be connected to the liturgy. Every evening, you can pray a Vespers, and you should pray a Vespers. And every morning, you can pray a matins, because it's a raising of incense, which came from there. And the incense, the symbolism there, okay, the bread was the Jesus is the bread of life. The, the light was Jesus' light of the world. What's incense represent? Prayers. Because incense is visual. That every time, okay, I've been a priest a long time, and every time I put incense in the, in the, in the thing, every time what happens when you put incense in the burning coal is the smoke goes up. So incense is always a picture of us, for us, of prayer. And the most important role was not Jesus. Okay, Jesus is bread of life. Jesus as light of the world, but Jesus also as the intercessor and the great high priest who prays for all his children. That's the details. Now let's go back 
And let's learn the lesson that God wants us to learn from each one of them. And the lesson of these is very simple. It's one lesson, which we'll give three applications for based on each one. The lesson of each of these items of furniture is who Christ is. Christ is light. Christ is bread. Christ is priest. It's who Christ is, but it's also who we are called to be. Because we're talking about priesthood, oneness of mission, consecration. So with each of these, it's who he is and who we are called to be when we unite with him. So let's start with the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. How can it be both? How can he be the light and I'm the light? How can he be the light? Wait, is he the light or am I the light? How can it be both? Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 tells us. St. Paul says that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How can he be the light and I'm the light? In the solar system, you have the sun. The sun is the only source of light. The sun is the only source of light. But you look at the stars and you look at the moon and it reflects light. Maybe not the stars. Forget about the stars. The moon. Let's stick with the moon. I'm not sure how the stars work, okay? I was never very good in science, okay? But the moon, I know for sure, does not emanate light, right? Scientists, am I right here? Do stars emanate light? Stars do, because the sun is just a star. I don't know how the stars work. But anyway, the moon, let's just stick with the moon. The sun is the only source of light. But then the moon gives light, but only because it gives what it receives. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be the moon. Not that we have any light inside of us, we are just called to reflect the light that is given to us. That's why the example that I always say, you've heard me say this before. We as Christians, our call is to be a lighthouse. You know what a lighthouse is? A lighthouse is a big tower, big high tower. And someone puts a light inside, and then you open the window and the light shines outside. Someone puts the light inside, and then you open the window and you shine the light outside. So the question for us, question for reflection, how am I bringing light into the darkness? How am I bringing light into the darkness? Intimacy with requires oneness with, or, or, or consecration to. Oneness of heart, which is what I want, requires oneness of mission. So the first step is we're called to be lights of the world. How am I bringing light to the world? Every one of us would agree the world is a dark place. Every one of us would agree the world is in need of light. Do we just talk about it? The easiest thing to do is talk about darkness. Curse the darkness. Avoid the darkness. Say how bad it is out there and how someone needs to fix it and wait for the election for somebody to fix it or wait for somebody to pick up and do something. That's the easiest thing in the world. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, as we say in the liturgy, as it says in the scripture, a people who sat in darkness have seen a great light because the world was very dark. And I've said this before. If you think the world is dark today, I promise you it was darker back then. What did Jesus do? He attacked the darkness by light. He shone the light. And he went straight in. And he brought, what does light do? When light goes in darkness, it gives clarity. Ah, this is the path. Light gives understanding. It answers questions. Light brings hope. That's why the expression, the light at the end of the tunnel, something everyone's looking for. Light takes darkness of despair. Like, are we the people? The world is full of despair. The world is full of hopeless. Hopefully, we're the people that come into those situations. And our trust in God, 
Our gratefulness to God, our consecration to him and to his eternal mission, and our desire for his heavenly kingdom comes in that darkness and brightens up the day. Is that you? Like, be honest with yourself. You don't got to answer to me. Are you a source of light? Are you a source of light in your work? Are you a source of light in your neighborhood? Are you a source of light, watch this one, in your house? Because some of us, at least maybe our spouses or our children might say, are a source of darkness in our house. And I've heard people say, they're at home when everything's nice, the garage opens and they cringe at what's coming in because they don't know. Are we light or are we darkness? Jesus calls us to be light. In case you're wondering how you get that light, simple. If I go stand outside in that sun, I see right out that window, it's nice and bright out there today. I stand out that in, in that sun for five hours. Am I going to come back looking the same way? No, I'm going to be filled with light. Probably might have skin cancer as well, but you know what I mean? Like when you stand in the light, the light changes you. And if you want to be filled with the light of God, if that sun, the S-U-N sun, can change the way I am after five hours, how about just five minutes with the son of God? The son of God is much stronger than that sun up there, which I don't know anything about. I already proved that. Time in his presence should transform us to be like him. That's the light. That's the candle stand. The second piece of furniture was what? What was on the right side? I can't remember. What was on the right side? <laughs> what was on the right side? The table of showbread. So the table of showbread, we said Jesus is the bread of life. Nourishment. Here's our question for reflection. How am I a source of nourishment for hungry souls? And notice my question is not am I. Am I a light in the darkness? Am I a source of nourishment? No, my question is how? Because it's not whether or not I should be. I am. But how? How am I a source of nourishment for the hungry? Everyone out there in the world, you don't need me to tell you this, everyone out there is hungry. Everyone out there is striving. Everyone out there is in need of something, looking for something, thirsting for something. And we have it. So my question to you, how are you nourishment for hungry souls? Time in your presence. Did you know this? Time in your presence. Hungry people should spend time with you and should leave fearing, feeling nourished. Did you know that? Not condemned, not feeling worse, should leave feeling nourished and satisfied. True story. A lot of our uh, young people moved into college this past week, okay? And I know people are still going away to college and things like that. And one college student was telling me about their, their, their first week on campus, and he told me a, a story that I thought it would be nice to share. This person, okay, met, they didn't know their roommate before, and they met them on campus, okay? And, uh, you know, our kids are great kids, okay? And sometimes, you know, when you are raised in a great way, and then all of a sudden you go out there, and the world is a very scary place, and the place is very, very different. So this student found himself with a nice roommate, but he found a surprise for him on the third night when he went back to his room. His roommate had a girl in the room, and it was nighttime, and his roommate asked him, you know, how long are you going to be, are you going to be here? And he was not nice and everything like that, but basically his roommate was saying, and this student was troubled. The student found himself saying like, I don't know why I came here. Because this is a weird environment, and now I'm in a place, and he felt uncomfortable. But what he did is he went and gave the guy his privacy, and he prayed. And he said, God used me. That's, look, God used me, that's free will. That's free will offering. That's not service. That's volunteer. That's saying, God, I could just be angry at this guy. 
I could complain, and I could, and I could, and I could, but he prayed, God used me. He went back to his room after whatever, an hour, I don't know how much time. And the end result was he had a conversation with his roommate. He didn't say anything about the girl. They didn't say anything about the rules of the room, and you can't, whatever it is. They had a conversation about the church. He talked to him about orthodoxy. He told this friend that his desire is to be set apart for God. His words, not mine. Desire to be set apart. We've got to hear it in quotes. What college student says that? My desire is to be set apart. Who says that to a guy who just had the lady friend in there? Do you know the result of this? He said they spent more than an hour chatting. And the guy, the student, wanted to go to sleep. It was the roommate who just had the time of his life. Okay, they were not having a prayer meeting in there. He had the time of his life. This student... This kid was hungry and was asking the other one, saying, tell me more about your church and tell me more about orthodoxy. And what do you mean desire to be set apart? And this guy wanted to go to sleep, but this guy was hungry. And even though he had what he thought to satisfy him, because that's the easy thing that's what we do in college. The easy thing to do is just find a girlfriend. That'll satisfy you. Find pleasure. That'll satisfy you. He thought he found what satisfy him, but he was still hungry. And our kid, our guy, was the one who was giving him the nourishment. John chapter 21, verse 17. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Question to you. You love God? Of course, God, you know I love you. That's why I'm here on a Sunday. That's why I do what I do. You love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. My sheep are hungry. Easiest thing to do, the easiest thing to do is see people who are hungry and say, you know what the standard answer is? How are you feeding the sheep? How are you feeding people? You know, I'm working on myself right now. I'm working on myself. It's somewhere in like the, 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 co- the excuse handbook, okay? It's like right at the top. I'm just working on myself right now. I just really need to be fed right now. I don't what? That's a cop-out. If you see, imagine that in, in reality that you said that to a real person. My son is hungry and my son comes to you and he's dying of hunger. And you say, he says, can you give me something to eat? And you say, sorry, I'm working on feeding myself right now. I really, really just need to eat this hamburger. Like, how rude is that? We do that to God's children all the time. No, I need to feed myself. That's a cop-out. How can you say you love me and see my child hungry and not care? If you love me, feed my sheep. He's the light of this world. How are you bringing light? He's the bread of life. How are you nourishing hungry souls? And lastly, the most important piece in this was the altar. The altar of sacrifice where he offers incense. I want to show you two verses, and then we'll talk about that. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. But he, because he continues, he is Jesus, obviously. Because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. We'll come back to that. Another verse, because there's someone else who also makes intercession, not just Jesus. Romans 8, 26. We do not know what we should pray for, as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Jesus is always interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is always interceding for us. You know why? Because intercession is the natural result of love. Intercession is the natural outcome of love. Because Jesus loves us, he intercedes for us. Same with the Holy Spirit. Because intercede 
means to stand before someone powerful on behalf of someone weak. That's what it means. To stand before someone powerful, a judge, a king. I stand before the powerful person and I intercede on behalf of the person who's weak. And if you don't, if you love a person, intercession is the natural outcome of that. So my question to you, Christ is the intercessor. How are you interceding for those in need? How are you interceding for others? Say it another way. You hear of a marriage struggling. What do you do? What's your response? Judge? Gossip? Laugh? Or pray? Intercede to God for the sake of that marriage that's in need. You hear of someone who fell back into addiction. What's your response? You see society going further down the toilet, pushing its own agendas, crimes against the innocent, children, women, unborn. You see these things, injustice all over. What's your response? Thank God it's not me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, that's your kids? Thank God it's not my kids. Oh, that's your, that, that, that happened to your friend. Oh, thank God it's not my marriage. You will never find intimacy with Jesus until you learn to pray for and intercede for the things that are on his heart. Like, let me say it in a different way. Imagine all this bad stuff and Jesus is every day entering his prayer room. Okay, obviously in heaven there's no room, but just follow me here. Jesus is in his prayer room and he is praying for the world and interceding for the sake and Jesus is there all the time and the Holy Spirit is there. If you want intimacy with him, go in that room. Go in that room and you will find intimacy with him. But if you avoid that room, you avoid him. If you sit in your selfish room, I only care about myself room, he's not in that room. And you're losing intimacy with him. Because oneness of heart requires oneness of mission. And let me show you how Jesus hardwired this into the tabernacle. When Jesus talked about Aaron, the priest, going into the holy place, he said, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate, breastplate of judgment over his heart. Bear the names over his heart on this thing that he would wear. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually, they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart. There you have it. Intimacy with God. Presence of God requires Aaron. I want you in my presence. But don't leave those people. You bear them on your heart. You carry them on your heart. And then you come into my presence. The two are linked together. Oneness of heart requires oneness of mission. Intimacy with is directly connected to consecration to his mission. And that's what it's all about. That's why we said we started this series. To talk about how the tabernacle is a blueprint for intimacy with God. Not as servants, not as slaves, but as sons. Free will. And the, the message for us today is which one of us is willing to roll up the sleeves, not forced, not servant, but say, God, free will, love, offering myself. How can I be of use to you? How can I help? What can I do? How can I hold your hand and join you and what you are giving yourself for? And I promise you, when you do that, you will find greater intimacy with God. I want to finish up two verses, and then we're out of here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood. 
not just me. You are a holy priesthood. But why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What spiritual sacrifices? Light of the world, nourishment to others, interceding for the sake of those in need. What offering are we offering up as priests that our intimacy is connected to? And if you don't believe me, last verse. One of my favorites. This is a memory verse. John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. There will always be a connection between our consecration to him and his mission and our intimacy with him and fellowship and communion. I think of it like my mom. Okay, I have two brothers. We were three boys growing up. We were all into sports. My mom, because she wanted to spend time with us and we were boys, we wanted to spend time with our mom, what she would do, we'd sit there and watch sports and she would sit down next to us and she would roll, if you've ever seen like someone roll grape leaves, okay, my mom was always rolling grape leaves. We always had it in the freezer and she was all like we'd sit in there and we're watching TV and she would sit there and roll with us just so that during commercials she could talk to us for a brief minute and then we'd rudely interrupt her as soon as the commercial was over, it was before DVRs. And my mom would sit there because she spent time with us. Well, I'm telling you, you want to spend time with Jesus? You know where he is? Yes, he's in here on Sunday mornings, but he's out there. He's in the mission. He's in the field. He's bringing light to the darkness. He's bringing nourishment to the hungry. He's interceding for those in need. So if you don't want to do those things, you're going to miss out on deep intimacy with him. But when you embrace those things, you say, light of the world, do my best. You say table of showbread, nourishment, I got that. Altar of incense, I want to do that as well. Then, you know what happens? Then the curtain is open and you can enter into the Holy of Holies. But you got to come back next week to hear about that. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you. For you've given us this blueprint to intimacy with you, which, Lord, is our greatest desire on this planet. Help us, Lord, to not lead selfish lives, but to consecrate ourselves to you. Free will, love offering, not out of fear, but out of love. Because we love you, and you've given yourself to us, Lord, so that what we desire more than anything is to give ourselves back to you. And we, each one of us says, use me, Lord, as light, as nourishment, as intercession for others. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. With the prayers and intercessions of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We hope today's message inspires you in your faith journey. And at the end of this episode, we invite you to take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel.